0: Hi, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. As always, I am so, so happy that you are here, and I am super excited to be bringing you another bonus episode. So a few weeks back, we did a bonus episode about emergency room nursing with this awesome nurse, Michael Smith, from the Real Talk School of Nursing, podcast. So if you are at all interested in learning what ER nursing is about and just getting a completely different perspective on nursing school, check out that bonus and then go and check out Michael's podcast. He is such a great guy. He's really funny. He's got a huge heart and he's really passionate about mentoring and being there for students. So today's bonus is about CRNA nursing. So we have Jenny Fennell that I interviewed about a week ago or so, and Jenny is going to share with you all kinds of great information about CRNA school, how to get in, what it's like, what the job is like. It's really great if you're at all interested in exploring that as a career option. So without further ado, let's dive in to the interview why don't we start jenny you give us a brief introduction of
1: who you are and what you're all about yeah sure no problem so for everyone my name is jenny Fennell. i have been a crna for six years now and um, i started my career at a level one as a crna i started my career at a level one trauma hospital did open heart and kind of as i transitioned we actually moved back home to be closer to family um, and right around that time i started mentoring some students um whether that be OR nurses or just different students who've reached out to me on social media, um, and when I moved back home, I started a career at a surgery center where we did a lot of regional blocks, peripheral nerve blocks, and um, found myself not really being thrilled with the surgery center environment. So I now actually work at a level one trauma pediatric hospital, and they're also the major burn center in the city. So we get adults um, who have burns. So it's kind of a nice blend of both. And so that's kind of my career that sums me up in a nutshell for six years, but um, I've loved every minute of it, and I would never change my career for the for the world. So I'm happy to share with you guys.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that students maybe looking at the CRNA pathway might not realize is that it's not just OR environment. So I love that you mentioned some different types of environments. So um, we'll talk about that in a bit. But first, I want to like, let's get into the mindset of a student who is maybe thinking that they want to do something beyond or different than your traditional bedside nursing. So if I'm a student who's in nursing school, what kinds of things can I do right now if I'm just even considering thinking about CRNA as
1: a pathway for me? That is a great question. I'm very excited to go over this because this is where I think a lot of people um, potentially run into problems later on if they discover this career path later. And so I know for me, I was pretty fortunate that when I started my BSN career, I, and just to kind of backstory on that, I actually took five years to get my BSN um, because I was not accepted the first time I applied and so when i finally got in um, i had heard about c r n a and just like i think the vast majority of nursing students you know you hear oh it's a good career you make a lot of money you know you have autonomy um you know you have to be really and then i of course you hear the things like you have to be really smart you have to be top of your class that you know you have to, it's very hard and you know i honestly didn't at the big be- at the beginning of my nursing career path even though i was kind of like well that sounds interesting i wonder what that's all about i didn't believe in myself that i even had the ability to do that even if I wanted to. Um, I definitely had, you know, typical lack of confidence that like I said, I was not accepted into the college of nursing my first try. So um, in my head, I just thought, well, I'm not I'm not smart enough for that. So but that being said, I went on my nursing career, did my clinicals and and I kind of kept the CRNA in the back of my mind, even though I never really actively pursued it. It wasn't until my senior year in nursing school when I did my ICU rotation Um, that I, and also to kind of back up so I don't lose you, um, I was a nurse's tech. So I got into nursing school after probably, I think it was a requirement to be in the program for nine months to a year, and then you qualified to get your CNA, which is your um, nursing assistant license. Um, I did that. I worked in a, uh, what was that? Peripheral vascular disease floor. So it wasn't even an ICU. It was just peripheral vascular disease I um, saw a lot of diabetic patients who, you know, had gangrene limbs, that type of thing. Um, but it was in the heart hospital. And I know the floor above me was open heart. I would occasionally float up there. And I, every time I would, I'd be terrified because there'd be someone coding or um, I just thought there's no way I could ever do ICU nursing. It's too scary. Um, and so that was where I was as a nursing student. And again, it wasn't until my critical care rotation as a senior nursing student that I was like, you know what? And I was in the you And I got exposed to CRNAs at the time who would give me a report. Um, And I kind of got more curious, started researching it more. And I fell in love with ICU nursing and the complexity of it. Um, I love pathophysiology. I love pharmacology. And so I made a commitment to myself that I was going to actively pursue CRNA. Um, I then transferred as a nurse's tech into the medical ICU. And finished up my last year in nursing school as a tech in the medical ICU. And I loved it. I, it was challenging. It was scary. It was hard. But I knew I had a lot of learning to do. If I was going to become a CRNA, I had to really engulf myself in the ICU world and try to learn as much as I could. So that is kind of how I set myself up from the very beginning as a nursing student to kind of get my foot in the door and get into the ICU And that's really key. I think people who wait on that step right there have trouble as a new grad getting in with no experience, getting right into the ICU. So sometimes they have to start in the step down or even med surge and then transfer to step down and then the ICU. Um, But me getting in as a tech, I worked hard. I worked, I worked really hard. I made sure those nurses loved me. I helped out. I was a team player. I had a good attitude and I got offered a spot in the residency program as a brand new grad and got right into the ICU. And um, that was a challenging step because being a fresh nurse, not only are you still a novice in everything you're doing, but now you're taking care of critically sick patients who are on their deathbed potentially, or um, knowing how to delegate as a new nurse is hard, even even for someone who's a seasoned, it can be hard to delegate. But now as a new nurse, you have to know how to delegate um, when you're in a critical situation. So it was a great experience. It was a big, steep learning curve. And I think that scares a lot of people too. But I think getting your foot in the door as a tech allows you to not be as scared for that step because you see it and the nurses really take a, you know, they'll take you under their wing. Um, you hear a lot of, you know, nurses eat their young and I just don't, and sure, they might be out there, but for the most part, if if you have a good attitude going into it and um, I, did, I found just the opposite, especially in the ICU, you know, they really um took me under their wing, really told me what I need to do and kind of worked with me because they knew they wanted me to be a nurse for them. So they made sure that I knew what I need to do to do that. Um, So that's a good place to start as a nursing student. Research it. Um, There's lots of resources out there. I encourage you to shadow. That was one of the first steps I did back when I was a nursing student. Uh, When I was in the ICU as a nursing student, I was getting a report from a CRNA and after the report, now granted, it it wasn't a super critical patient. I wasn't, you know, be mindful of that. You don't want to, in the middle of a critical report, you don't want to pull them aside and chit chat. But again, it was a relatively, it was a stable patient. And I actually said, Hey, would you mind if I asked you a little bit about being a CRNA and they were happy to talk about it? And I said, I would love to shadow you, shadow you sometime if we could exchange numbers and the CRNA was happy to do so. They were um within the month I was in the OR shadowing that person. And I love every second of it. I remember just feeling overwhelmed but excited and just kind of just fascinated with like, wow, I can't believe they can do all this. And they know how to drop all these drugs, know exactly how much to give and what to give and when to give it. It just was it kind of blew my mind that this was a nurse and this is what their role was. And they were at the head of the bed in charge, calling the shots, talking to the surgeon talking to the anesthesiologist and coming up with a game plan on how to get this patient through what could be a critical surgery safely. Um, It just was so, so I just, I knew at that moment that I had to make this work for me. Um, And so shadowing, I think that's one of the first things you can do to kind of make sure you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. If you've never actually dipped your toes in the water, you know, you want to really Make sure that this is something that you feel that adrenaline, you feel that surge of excitement. You really want to feel passionate about what you pursue because, yes, the road is hard, it's long, and it's expensive. So, don't get into it and then realize you made a mistake. You want to make sure you're putting that investment up front to make sure it's what you really want. Um, and, really, the next step and this is should occur in nursing school is researcher schools. Um, they're all different, and that actually is where I See a lot of students struggle with the most is the fact that these schools can all be a little different, and look at look at their candidates in a slightly different way. Um, you have to make sure that you meet all their requirements. Some nursing schools don't even require chemistry, which most nursing anesthesia programs do require chemistry, and not just chemistry, but chemistry plus a lab and maybe even organic chemistry. So again, knowing this early on can allow you to prepare for this. So maybe when you first graduate. You can take an organic chemistry class, or maybe they require a graduate statistics course. You can get that out of the way. Um, I took a graduate-level stats my senior year in nursing school because I knew my future CRNA program required it. I got permission as a senior nursing student to take graduate-level stats. I did have to get permission to do that in my undergrad, but it is clearly doable. Um, I did that, got it out of the way because again, I was a five-year nursing BSN student. I had the room in my schedule. I figured we might as well get it done. Um, it's either that or I work more hours. So I might as well take this class. And then when I graduated and worked in the ICU, I focused on my GRE and my CCRN as well as we got married. So I planned a wedding. So I mean, it wasn't all, you know, work. I did have some fun. Um, but the GRE I had to take twice and that was, that's a pretty awful test. (laughs) I'm just going to be on it. That's an awful test. Um, it was math that I hadn't even thought about since high school, and I my high school career was not great. Um, so it was challenging, I had to actually pay for a tutor, invested a lot of money in that test to do well. Um, but that was my focus after school. So researcher school, get to know the requirements, whether you meet um, the chemistry requirements, the um, those types of things, whether you need grad stats or something like that. And also check into labs. Make sure that if you have a chemistry, do they require chemistry with the labs? And again, just making sure all that, that'll make your life and your transition so much easier. And then the next thing too is go to open houses. All these programs have open houses and that is not only a great way to network and find out more information, um, but it just They'll they'll recognize your face, and if they can put a name with a face, when you go to that interview, they can say, "I know you because I have seen you around for the last three years coming to our open house. I know you want this." Um, I'm telling you guys, that's invaluable. And not to mention, it'll allow you to get your questions answered, network with current SRNAs about the program, make sure the program is actually a good fit for you. There's nothing better than to talk to current CRNAs or SRNAs, which are student nurse anesthetists, to see if they're happy. Because you don't want to go to a program and have be blindsided by stuff that you weren't aware of. If you actually have connections with current SRNAs, you're going to know all this prior to going into the program. Um, and just like every college, not all colleges are equal. So you're making a big investment in time and money. Make sure you're going to be happy. Um, and then grades. That's really sums it up. The nursing school grades are important. You guys and not just overall grades. I'm talking about science GPA versus regular GPA, and you should know your science GPA. Um, To figure out your science GPA, they look at things like chemistry, micro, or any kind of biology, um, math courses like algebra or stats. They look at chemistry and um, anatomy, or I said chemistry, anatomy, uh, physiology. So you wanna take just those core science classes, and typically those are the classes you take prior to getting accepted into your nursing program. And if it's a 4.0, um, and it's four credits, that's 16 points. If it's a B, that's a 3.0. And um, it's, if it's a four credit class, that's 12 points. And essentially, you add up all your points and then divide it by your total credit hours. That'll give you your science GPA. You want to know that. But really, the, the, where I see people struggle the least is if they have at least a 3.4 science GPA. I know that may seem high and it doesn't mean that you can't get accepted with a science GPA of a 3.0, but know that if you have a 2.8 or a 3.0 science GPA, Mm -hmm. especially, you're going to have to do some extra things like taking graduate level science courses to prove to these programs you can maintain a B average because you have to get a 3.0 or maintain a B average to not be on academic probation or even kicked out of these programs. So they look for a track record that proves to them that you can handle that. Um, so know that it's not off the table if that's the case, but again, um, people think just because they got a, a 4.0 in their BSN, but maybe their ADN is a 2.8. They're not sure why they didn't get an interview, but it's because your ADN is where all your core sciences actually are. And that's what they look at more closely than just your BSN coursework. So, and a lot of this can be figured out if you go to open houses and you talk to the program director and, and say, hey, can you do a transcript review for me? I would really appreciate it. Most schools are happy to do that for you. Um, and the ones who don't, um, you can always take it upon yourself. Again, to calculate your, your um, grades yourself or ask around. I even tell students sometimes that if their program won't do a transcript review, to call it in their program and act like you're interested in that program and have them do it for you, which is Maybe I shouldn't advertise that secretly, but I mean, if you need help, you need help. And um, you got to be willing to find a way to get the help and know what you have to do to to better yourself to become a good candidate. Um, So that sums it up. That's a lot, I know, uh, but hopefully I answered some questions. Yes,
0: thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely important that students, you know, kind of think about what their options might be further down the road, and the sooner you can start planning for that, the better, because from what I understand, you have to have critical care experience to even
1: apply. Is that correct? That is correct, Um, and we can kind of go into that next with work experience, and that's also where I see a lot of people make some mistakes. Um, One of the biggest mistakes I actually see is people think ER counts as ICU experience, And don't get me wrong, I know some ERs actually have like an ICU holding area where maybe if they can't get a bed right away, they actually get holded in this uh, ICU waiting area. Um, But for the most part, ER nurses don't long-term over a 12-hour shift manage a critically sick patient. Um, They get them stable enough to transfer up to the unit. So they may be starting some drips, but they're not long-term managing those drips or the ventilator or anything like that. Um, So a lot of schools, not very many of them, some of them will take ER wholeheartedly. Some will say on an individual basis. Well, what individual basis means is what does the rest of your application look like and how well can you do in your critical care interview that they're going to put you through? Um, And so they may still accept you with ER experience, but you're not going to be putting yourself in the best spot possible to be competitive against someone who has, say, SICU or MICU experience. Um, So I really encourage you guys before you take uh, ER job that you make sure that the program you're interested in actually full, hard, open hands takes ER experience. If you see individual basis, I would be leery. I would still encourage you to go to the actual true ICU to give yourself the best edge possible. Um, The other units to be weary of are PACU, cath lab, OR. People sometimes think that these count. This does not, typically count. But then you'll say, well, I I know someone who had um, OR experience and they became a CRNA or I know someone was in the cath lab. Well, typically what happens is they have ICU experience, then they transfer to the cath lab, they interview, they get accepted. The other caveat to that is not all schools will take you if you are not currently working in the ICU, meaning I've had students who don't don't look into this and they say they apply to school with after two years ICU experience. In the meantime, in the six-month waiting period, they transfer to the cath lab, they get an interview, they interview, they find out they're in the cath lab. They say, well, unless you can get back into the ICU, you forfeit your spot. Don't let that happen to you. Make sure you know your school's policy on whether you have to maintain a full-time work status in the ICU prior to starting the program. Some schools are more lenient. Some schools will say all you need is two to three years of ICU within the last two to three years, meaning you can work in the ICU for two years, transfer out for two years, apply and get into school. Um, this is why open houses, you guys, this is why open houses are make a big difference because they're all a little different as far as those types of requirements. But the other unit other than those are NICU and PICU. People run into problems having that experience and, NICU is better than, or I'm sorry, PICU, the pediatric ICU is better than the neonatal ICU um, as far as range of schools who take it. But that's also something to keep in mind. And I'm not trying, I love, I work at a pediatric hospital as a CRNA. I love kids. We're getting ready to have our third kid. Um, I'm not, I would never, ever want to encourage anyone not to want to pursue pediatric ICU. Um, But just make sure if CRNA is your goal, that your career or your program that you really want to get into will take that experience it doesn't mean that once you become a crna you can't go back to the pediatric world that's completely obviously i have i've gone from adults to peds there's there's the possibilities are endless once you become a crna but unfortunately have to play by the school's rules and if they don't take nicu pick you then get into the adult icu and make your pediatric career a plan in the future um I've had some people who transfer out of the NICU or PICU to an adult ICU just to go to school, um, which is unfortunate because then you start your experience all over again. Um, These schools require two to three years of high acuity ICU. And I'm also going to touch on high acuity real quick, too, just because it's another mistake I see commonly made by students. Um, They, you know, take an ICU job, but maybe it's at a really rural community. And rural can be good because you have more autonomy. You make more decisions for yourself. So don't get me wrong. But if your program does, does not know the types of acuity that you get and they have not heard of that hospital, especially if you're applying out of state, they're not going to, unless your resume really shines, they're not going to know are you seeing vents the majority of time you're working? Are you dealing with vasoactive drips? Um, or are you shipping those patients to a level one center near you? Um, they really want to see high acuity because they want to make sure you're mul- managing multi organ failure and multiple vasoactive drips and ventilators, maybe even. Um, you know, proning patients or CRRT or ECMO or balloon pumps, they really love all that high acuity. Um, The sicker, the better, essentially. So when you're taking your ICU job, when you're asking these managers what types of patients they have in the unit, ask them, do you see ECMO? Do you see CRRT? Are there opportunities for leadership roles? Um, What kind of committee work do you guys offer that I can get involved in? Being proactive and picking your unit and asking what opportunities or ahead of you as a new nurse um, is really the way you want to go. Some uh, hospitals require a two to three year residency program. Typically schools will count that experience as your ICU experience because you're not with a, you're not really with a preceptor usually except for maybe the first three months. And then they technically consider you on the residency after that, which just means that, um, you know, you have this kind of period of having a mentor essentially, Um, but they will take that that experience. The only problem with residency programs, and let's just say if it's a two- or three-year residency program, and after a year of ICU, you're ready to go back to grad school, if you break that contract, you guys, you could be in a lot of trouble, and you could be on the no-hire list for that hospital. So you want to make sure you look into those things, too, and um, know what you're getting yourself into if you're committing to a work contract for two or three years. Um, so, yeah, leadership I think did I get off topic a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's all gold, Jenny. It's all gold. So I want to <laughs> ask you real quick. So, can you work while you're in CRNA school? That's a great question. That's a lot of a lot of people ask me that question. And I I wish I had a solid answer for you. It's yes and no. Yes, because like and I, even I worked for the first three months of my program. Um, but then afterwards I decided it was not worth my stress. And you know, I was like, ah. Uh, $1,000 a month is not going to make or break me in the long run. It wasn't worth my stress. Um, so I, after three months of working, I think one or two days a week, I quit. Um, some students managed to work one or two days a week again for the usually the first three or four months, possibly. Now that it's DNP prepared, if you do all your didactic work up front, you may be able to work one or two days a week um, for the first year of the program, even. And then the last two years, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, just because once clinicals pick up and you're in your actual anesthesia coursework, it's very intense. You have to dedicate 50 to 60 hours a week between clinical and studying. And so it's like, you really want to work 70, 80 hours a week, but you also have to maintain your GPA at a 3.0. So, or you get kicked out of the program. So you have to kind of decide, is money really worth it? Is Can I really juggle all these things? And that's going to be different for everyone. You know, if you have kids or other obligations, probably not. If you're if you're lucky enough to have, maybe live at home with your parents who can cook and clean for you, and you know maybe you can still work one day a week. The only um, SRNA I ever mentored, who was a student of mine, managed to work a stat nurse job. Um, he did nights. He did 12 hours every Saturday night. He said that the only reason it worked for him is because he either would sleep, because <laughs> it was slow, or he would get some studying done. Because um, it just wasn't a very busy shift to be on. Um, some nights were busy, some weren't. So he managed to work one day a week through the entire program. That's not very common. Um, so again, I would say vast majority of students do not work. They take out loans, um, and that's just kind of the name of the game. And the ones who do occasionally work, you know, it's it's intermittently, and it's not. It's maybe going to be enough to pay for your groceries every month, and that's it.
0: Okay. So that brings me to how, I know you. when we talked earlier, you mentioned that there were a lot of myths out there about CRNA school. Like some of the myths or some of the things that I hear, I don't know if they're myths or if they're actually true, is Mm -hmm. it's an incredibly rigorous program. I think that's probably true. Um, Overwhelmingly expensive, which makes it prohibitive for a lot of people and that you basically have No life. So what
1: are some of the myths you hear and any that you can debunk? Yeah, I would love to debunk some myths. Um, You know, as far as it being ridiculously hard, that was one of the fears I had. Remember when I first heard about CRNA, I was like, well, I I heard it's ridiculously hard. I'm not smart enough for that. Um, What I want to say, there's no such thing as not being smart enough about for anything in life, for that matter. That's where I am now in my life. But I wish I'd known that 10, 15 years ago. But long story short, if you're committed to something and you're willing to dedicate, put 110% in, you can do whatever you put your mind to. You really, really can. But it, the commitment has to be there. And what I tell students is that book smart will only take you so far. You need grit. You need discipline. You need accountability. You need flexibility. You need to be adaptable. These are all key care- resilience, key characteristics of an SRNA. Um, you, you have to want to, you, 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 can't always be rewarded for what you do. You have to kind of grit to me says you're doing something with no reward. You're, it's hard. It's painful. It's not fun, but you're doing it anyways, because you know, you're going to see growth. Um, people who you hear like these Olympic swimmers who practice for these ridiculous hours, it hurts. It's painful. It's not fun, but then they win the gold medal, you know? So having grit and discipline can really bring you out on top. And so I think knowing how much dedication this is going to take going into it is really going to set you up for success, meaning anyone can do it. You just have to have the discipline and accountability to hold yourself accountable to do the work. Um, These programs want you to pass. These programs would not have their doors open if their um, attrition rate was, you know, or they would look bad, essentially, if their attrition rate was 50%, who'd want to attend that program? You know, so essentially, if you're accepted into the program, they really want you to be successful. Not only that, but in order to keep the doors open, they have to keep a board passing rate of 80%. So they really work with their students to try to make sure that you're going to be passing boards so you don't make their program potentially lose their accreditation. Um, So they tell you what you need to do. It's just up to you to do it. They literally give you an outline. Do this, do that, do that. And if you do it, you're going to be fine. The key to that is it's a lot of work it's 50 it's and you it's 60 hours a week you know it's, it's a lot of work on top so if you're working in clinical 36 hours a week you're spending the rest of that time studying every single week um and don't get me wrong we went to Puerto Rico for a week we took a week vacation went to Puerto Rico um I told I we don't ever watch tv anymore now we have two kids and one on the way and I'm working and doing the you know this my set my mentoring business I've have no time. Um, and I look back at grad school and the time I had in grad school, I'm like, we watch Netflix every Friday night. (laughs) Like that's, that's having time. Like I I'm kind of envious of those days. Like I don't even have that time now, um, as a working adult, you know, juggling everything. So it's not, your life doesn't suck. You know, you have time to have friends. You have time to go out and drink, go to the bar. You have time to take vacation. We would go out drinking after class. Not that we probably should have, but you know, we commuted to class, um, and there was five of us, so one of us would be DD, and then after our eight-hour class, we need a uh, just a whew, like a breather. And we're like, let's go we'll get a drink. So we go to the bar with some classmates, have a beer for an hour, and then go home. Um, so shoot, we managed to do that for the whole two years we were in school. So that was fun. I mean, it's not all terrible. I think people post about that a lot because yes, it's hard, and there's a lot of times where. I came home, I, I took some Advil, drank some wine and then cried in the shower and then got out, did my work and get up and do the, did it again every day. It was like, got home, wine, Advil, cry, go to back to clinical, got home, wine, Advil, cry, but then you get through it. <laughs> you kind of become kind of like a robot and motions. And before you know it, you're getting ready to graduate. So um, it's not all awful, but it is a lot of work and it's very hard and it's very taxing. And I think it's more about the burnout than anything. So coping with stress and managing your own stress level is really key as far as juggling it all um, and not being so hard on yourself because let's just face it, ICU nurses tend to be type A, most nurses actually in general, not just ICU nurses, um, but they're, you're harder on yourself than anyone else. And I think, at least I tell my SRNAs that I work with, I say, you're your own worst critic. Just because you didn't get every A-line, every intubation, every IV, or maybe you didn't know the answer to my question, don't beat yourself up over it. You're learning. You're a student. That's the name of the game. Um, me, as a CRNA, I still have bad days. I still don't get my intubation some days, or A-lines, or epidurals. I mean, it happens. You're human, and you do the best you can, and every day is a learning experience for growth. Um, so that's that myth debunked. And I, what was the other one? The debt? Was that the other yes, one? the cost. The cost, yeah, this is probably honestly the hardest one for me to talk about because this is, in my opinion, getting out of control, um, as is most education across the nation. <laughs> Didn't mean for that to rhyme, it just did. Um, but you know, there are some programs, you guys, that are close to two hundred thousand dollars, and then there are some programs that are forty thousand dollars. Now, granted, once they become DNP programs, they're probably going to jump up to more like sixty thousand dollars, but. I would say um, the average cost for CRNA school is right around $100,000. And, you know, me, I had $80,000 of student loan debt from my undergrad. Um, because when I turned 18, I took out a credit card and paid my way through college. And I, once I got into nursing school, because I didn't get in the first time, I didn't work a whole lot. Um, so I took out a lot of loans just to go get my undergrad degree. Um, so when I was faced with going back to grad school, luckily, the program I got into was affordable. I think my Tuition was like it was less than $40,000, but then I had to take out loans to live on. So, all in all, I ended up with $150,000 of student loan debt when I was done with uh, my graduate degree. I've been out for six years and I have $22,000 left. And what I can tell you is I love Amazon. I'm terrible with money. Like, like I, I, I'm not perfect and I make mistakes. I don't do Dave Ramsey, I don't do anything fancy. Um, one of the best things I did when I was done with school, we didn't have kids, um, which probably played into it. So we rented a house that was like $1,000 a month, which I thought was expensive <laughs> at the time. Um, I drove my 14 year old Nissan Sentra until I was pregnant with our first and the door handle busted off in a snowstorm. And I finally was like, I have to crawl in through my passenger door <laughs> to get into my car. It's time to get a car. Um, and I'm pregnant. and This is hard. Um, so I we lived very, we didn't we took a few nice trips. We went to St. Lucia, Whistler, but otherwise we lived at the same standard that we lived in grad school, which was cutting back on a lot of things. And I paid off $90,000 in two years. I did work. Um, I did like 16-hour shifts, 24-hour shifts, and I picked up um, typically two 24-hour shifts of overtime a month, along with eight hours of overtime intermittently. I made a lot of money my first few years out of school. Um, so I made sure I put everything into my loans that I could. Um, and then when we had kids, it kind of went, you know, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> we got a house, we got a car, Kids daycare is so expensive. Um, but we did the best we could. I refinanced, I should have done that sooner, but I refinanced, set up a five-year repayment plan. It was like, set it, forget it. Um, so that's kind of where we are with that. And um, I wouldn't let let that fear hold you back. Um, a lot of people have never had loans and they're terrified of it. Um, I was never that way because I juggled loans all through my undergrad years. And I have way too many credit cards because of it. (laughs) But I also know the seriousness of it if you were to make a mistake. Um, So the key is knowing your numbers, knowing your budget. Um, If you have to, if you're not, if you're still not comfortable with making your own budget or knowing your numbers, get a financial planner. Um, and do that early, meaning as soon as you graduate nursing school, get a financial planner involved, have them help you set aside money so you can have a nest egg ready to go when you get into grad school. Uh, we had about $10,000 in savings. That was after I paid for a $30,000 wedding. Um, it was really hard for me to come up with that kind of money. I worked a lot of overtime as an ICU nurse to get that nest egg and we blew through it. And <laughs> that time, and I remember I graduated, took my boards and um, that period of graduating and taking boards and starting work was about three months. Um, we were broke. I had no job. I took out a $10,000 credit card loan. Cause again, I told you I have lots of credit cards. I have good credit though. So I took out a credit card loan. We lived on that $10,000 until I started my, my job. And then I made sure I paid that off right away. Um, but it was like 0% for 18 months, you know, so I had 18 months to figure out how to pay that off. Um, so just be smart with it, but you get through, um, the payoff is worth it. So, I mean, we've never had to sacrifice financially to pay all my student loans. Um, If you get upwards of a debt to income ratio of over 100 percent, meaning if you're making $200,000 a year and you have $200,000 or more of student loans, that is usually where I see the CRNAs I work with complain more about paying off their debt um, or struggling a little bit more. So just keep that in mind, Um, you know, between you and your spouse, you're making $300,000 a year, you could probably handle, you know, $270,000 of debt. Is it going to be fun? No, but you could probably handle it. But, you know, if you're you're between you and your spouse, you're maxing out at $200,000 a year and you're going to have $300,000 of student loan debt, that's going to get hard. That's going to be a sacrifice for several years after school to get that paid down quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Thank you for that. And then a moment ago, you mentioned something about DNP. Can you talk about that versus the DNAP and what that means for CRNAs?
1: Yeah, sure. Cause this is also kind of a very confusing and I, myself had to actually reach out to a couple faculty members to explain this to me. Um, all programs are transitioning to DNP in 2022 um, and actually all advanced practice nurse degrees are going this way. So you guys were not unique in this, but it's, it's through the um, council of accreditation. It's the new uh, requirement. So in 2022, all nursing anesthesia programs are going to be now DNP. So this is the last year to get into CRNA school as MSN, if that's what you want. Um, the biggest difference is a tax on nine months of additional schooling. And to be honest with you, I'm going back for my DNP now as already a working CRNA. It's going to take me three years. <laughs> part-time. So I wish I would have done the nine month course, you know, um, but you know, it is what it is, but that's nine more months of not working. So people, it's hard for people to swallow that. Um, but DNP, DNAP. So, um, here, let me get my notes out. Here's, I did write some stuff down, but the, the biggest, it's really not that big of a difference to be quite honest with you. Like in the big scheme of things, um, the doctorate, um, of nurse anesthesia practice is the DNAP. And that typically occurs outside a school of nursing, typically. I can't say 100% to any of this. I just know typically uh, where a DNP occurs inside a college of nursing. And um, the only difference in curriculum is that a DNP maybe focuses more on nursing theory and leadership, where the DNAP is more clinically based uh, leadership. And so that's the biggest difference, meaning their curriculum is technically the same, Maybe one of their courses might be slightly different, um, but for the most part, it's the same thing. The only other thing to be aware of is if you're getting your DNAP and say you want to become a program director someday, or maybe an assistant program director um, at a university that is a DNP university, there may be issues with you qualifying for tenure as a nurse, which is essentially teachers' job security. Um, That's really the biggest issue, or they may not hire you at all based on their. Facilities requirements. Um, so that's the only really other thing to think about is if you really want to teach someday, the DN the DNp will probably give you more range as far as where to go. Versus if you took a DNAP, you may be limited to teach at another program that is also a DNAP. Um, but that's really it as far as clinicals. DNp does not change a thing. You're still required to have the same amount of clinical hours, cases, um, all of that. So. People always ask me, well, is a DNP more prepared than an MSN? No, it's just more theory. It's more, it's a a capstone project. It's a research project. Um, The anesthesia coursework is the same. I have had some program directors tell me that now that they have more time, that they are maybe adding in additional stuff like POCUS, which is point of care ultrasound, or maybe the business of anesthesia to talk about uh, QZ billing and TEFRA laws and going into more coursework like that, that maybe they didn't have time for before, before. Um, so that may be a slight advantage. Maybe you'll get a little bit extra out of your education, but it's not going to really change the nuts and bolts of what you learn as far as anesthesia goes. Okay.
0: All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of environments
1: where a CRNA would work. How varied are the job prospects? They're very varied and also hours, uh, very flexible. I mean, I've, I've done every shift of 24-hour shifts, 16, 10s, uh, 13s, and 14s. I've done eights. Um, so that can be found based on where you look. There's level one trauma hospitals. There's small rural hospitals um, where maybe it's all CRNA only. Um, there's different models, like I said. So there's CRNA only practices. There's supervision models, which is where maybe you have um, one attending for seven CRNAs, and then there's models where you have one attending for four CRNAs. Um, you know so that can you know vary based on where you work. There's also CRNAs who work at ketamine clinics or pain clinics. There's CRNAs who work at um, ophthalmology. so they do like eyeballs, cataracts, uh, that kind of thing. There's CRNAs who work at endoscopy clinics, so they do colonoscopies, EGDs all day. Uh, there's CRNAs who do legal, um, you could be the witness uh, or expert witness for legal cases. Um, you can get political. You can have a political career. I know CRNAs who own businesses. They actually run the, their own anesthesia practice. Um, there's also CRNAs. I know a CRNA who's a hypnotist. Um, so that's like his business, his side business. He focuses on wellness and hypnotism. And it's actually very fascinating. Uh, and there's just all kinds of stuff. You can be an author. I mean, program director. Uh, so an educator. Um, I might've left, but yeah, there's just a wide variety out there as far as you can even specialize. If you just want to do pediatrics, if you just want to do OB, there are, um, jobs that you work two weeks on two weeks off and all you do is OB. That's all you do is you cover OB, um, which is labor and delivery for, yeah. So quite a range, (laughs) but lots of different things to do. Not necessarily always just in an OR. Correct. OR is not your thing. I mean the vast majority of jobs are in some type of operating room Mm -hmm. suite. Um, you know, but that comes in all different shapes and forms. I mean, I've worked at a level one operating room. I've worked at a surgery center. Those are very different. Right. Um, and you know, I've never worked at a pain clinic or dental clinic, but I mean, for me, I just mean, or, Oh, I forgot Mm -hmm. anesthetics. That's a big one now that's coming out is, um, I know CRNAs who run their own anesthetic business. So they do like the fillers um, what is the other one? The vampire facials? What? You know, so they, they actually do like, uh, Botox and things like that. So, yeah, <laughs> for the discount, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, I I could use some. Actually, I'm thinking
0: about it. <laughs> but what's the best part about your job? What do you love the most about being a CRNA?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm well. You know, I really love taking away someone's fear and anxiety and pain. All of those things, Um, you know, I'm the first one, you know, so before you get ready to go back for surgery, and it could be open heart, which could be terrifying. It could be, you know, something as simple as a trigger finger release, you know, and so maybe it's like, okay, you know, but either way, your anxiety is still the same, right? You're still scared. You've never done it. You don't, you know, what if something happens, you know, or what if I don't wake up or, you know, so as a CRNA, I'm walking to the bedside and pre-op and I can answer those questions. I can be there. I can call them. I can reassure them. I'm with them the whole time. So I really think the key to having someone wake up comfortably is alleviating the anxiety going in. Um, And then also you're there, you're communicating with them the whole time, even though they're not physically talking to you, you're watching their heartbeat. You're watching their vital signs. You can tell if they're in pain, even though they're asleep. So, you know, or you can tell if they need more volume or if the surgeons um, are maybe compressing the vena cava, you can tell all these things based on what operation you're doing. Um, I think it's, the challenge of managing someone through what could be a critical operation, um, checking their electrolytes, replacing blood products, again, um, knowing what the surgeons are doing when they unclamp, you know, if they're doing, um, like aorta, if they're once, once they unclamp, you get a lot of lactic acid release, which can cause a lot of hemodynamic shifts, acidosis, and it's all acute. So you're managing that, um, replacing electrolytes in labs to kind of compensate for that, the acidotic shift. It's just fascinating. So if you like pharmacology, pathophysiology, um, CRNA, you you would really enjoy. Um, and then just again, if someone wakes up from surgery, and they're like, am I all done? That's one of the best things I can hear. Because if they wake up, and they're not even in pain to know they had surgery, and they're shocked that they're already done, even though it was four hours of surgery, you're like, sweet, I did my job really good. <laughs> they don't even know they had surgery. So that's always enjoyable, too. That is awesome. Yeah, I worked medical ICU for
0: eight or nine years. And then I always say, I semi-retired to the recovery room. And I love (laughs) it when patients wake up and they're always like, really? I'm done.
1: And they're so happy a song to you as you're pushing them to pack you. You're like, this is awesome. (laughs) They're so
0: relieved. They're so happy. And it is great. And I definitely do see the difference between good pain management intraoperatively and not. And it really does make a huge difference. So thank you for being such an advocate for your patients in that yeah. way. That is great. Okay. I want to hear more about your mentorship program and I bet our listeners do too the ones that are thinking about CRNA school. So how do you help students through this, through this
1: journey? Yeah, yeah no, that's great. So a couple years ago now, I can't believe it's been almost two years. Um, again, as we were kind of, I was kind of transitioning jobs and moving, you know, different cities, um, I had a handful of students and I mean like 10 and some of them were people I actually physically knew um, ICU nurses that came up to me in the ICU when I drop off my open heart patients and ask me. Um, and so I was just helping them. And what I found was I was reaching, I was started to reach out to program directors for them. I started talking to, cause I had, I worked with an assistant director um, and closely with the assistant director. So I ta- chatted with him, um, talked to current SRNAs and I, I, kind of came to the realization that applying to CRNA school is not black and white. And just because I had a certain experience at the certain schools I applied to, does not mean that my experience will be what their experience is like, because everyone is a unique. Everyone's unique. Everyone has a different background. It's just, it's so multifaceted that it was impossible to give someone cookie cutter advice. You you can't do it. Um, But... I think because of that, it piqued my interest. I was like, Ooh, this is kind of fun. I kind of like kind of cracking the code and trying to help them. Um, and you know, also I felt for them too. because I remember how stressful it was for me. And, um, back in 2009, when I was going through it all, there wasn't that many resources out there. There wasn't Instagram, there wasn't Facebook There, I just, I had to, my biggest help on my pathway was meeting or knowing an SRNA who was already in the program ahead of me, um, and she happened to be my friend, and she helped me, and that, to me, was, that, that changed the game for me. That really, really helped me, and so I know the power of mentorship, um, and I was that student who struggled. I, like I said, I didn't get into nursing school. I struggled academically uh, for a long time until I could figure things out for myself, um, but I took a lot of, I needed mentors. I needed help. I was not the kind of person who had it all figured out, and so I knew that I now had this role as a CRNA that I could be that mentor for these students. And so, um, I started a Facebook group and so I wasn't, cause I found myself giving this very similar advice over and over again. So I started a group, um, so I could record myself and have my 10 people watch it, you know, and then I don't have to make 10 different phone calls. Um, and that group just grew. Um, now we have a large community of over 10,000 aspiring students and, um, About a year ago, I started CRNA School Prep Academy um, because I was doing all my teaching on Facebook, and it was very time-consuming, and I was still working full-time, and I said, you know, I really want to take this to a different level, but I I need to figure out how I can sustain this and um, not work 60 hours a week. You know, I have two little kids with one on the way now. Um, So I started a mentoring community that is a paid mentor community, um, but it allows me to give my time to you, um, to my students. We do monthly workshops. Like I'm getting ready to do a clotting cascade workshop this Friday. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little (laughs) wish me luck on that one. Um, So we educate our students. I have a program faculty member, Richard Wilson, who works with me now. He helps me um, make content for my students. Um, we're working on an SRNA boot camp for the SRNAs who are getting ready to enter their programs, so they can get a head start on chemistry and physics um, and all that fun stuff. So I've had fun with it. We do monthly Q and As. Um, I, you know, reach out to program directors. I'm getting programs involved. Um, we're now doing our first in person conference this year in South Carolina. So it's just been a whirlwind of a year, but it's been so great. Um, I've helped over, I've helped hundreds of students at this point gain acceptance. Um, We're up to like 600 some students in our membership. You know, I've gotten great feedback from it. Um, It's just been awesome. And I've, it's been so rewarding. I think what I enjoy the most is the relationships I get to develop with my students. And once they get acceptance, I'm not, I don't just disappear. I'm here. They can hit me up for questions. Hey, Jenny, I have this case tomorrow. You know, what, what should I plan for? Or what's the best book for this? Or it's just fun getting to help my students in a way that I know I would have appreciated back when I needed it.
0: Yeah, that sounds, that sounds
1: awesome. And so it's called CRNA Academy. Yeah. So actually when I was looking for domains, it, I wish it would could be something as simple as like CRNA prep Academy. Cause that's what most people call it, <laughs> but uh-huh. <the> domains taken. <laughs> so it actually is now CRNA school prep Academy. Got it. So okay. And what, the is the,
0: what is the name of your Facebook group so that people can go find you?
1: Yeah, sure. That's a little different. Um, because that one's actually called um, ICU, so like ICU nurses, I, the, with the letters I and then C and U, uh, dreaming about anesthesia and um, by CRNA School Prep Academy. I just, I think I put that on there just to clarify because people were getting confused if they were the same group or the same thing. Um, so, yeah, so ICU Dream About Anesthesia is the Facebook community, 100% free. Um, we're on there. We do probably quarterly lives on there, me and Richard. And so you're not high and dry in that community. I monitor everything. I, I, you know, so the feedback on there is amazing. It's a great resource, especially if you're early on, you're not sure. Um, I, I tell my students, you know, when you're a hundred percent sure CRNA is for you, that's when CRNA School Prep Academy is really for you. Um, we have designed it to go from the planning phase all the way through the SRNA phase. So every, I have it like road mapped out. Um, so Don't wait till you're applying to your school to seek out resources for CRNA School Prep Academy because there's so much in there. You're going to be overwhelmed. Um, I tell people to study for the interview, you're talking six to nine months to prepare for the interview because the interview itself is very grueling. Um, We do mock interviews. We do essay edits, resume edits, transcript reviews. Um, We even have, we're going to open up opportunities for tutoring, um, like for SRNAs. So there's just tons of resources. So yeah, I, I think... The Facebook group is kind of a nice way for people to kind of figure things out, Um, ask your questions, see if this is the right path for you. And um, CRNA School Prep Academy is for those who are 100% committed to CRNA.
0: Okay, that sounds absolutely awesome. Thank you so much. This was so eye-opening for me, and I, I learned a ton, and I hope that everybody listening did as well. I just want to pop back in real quick and thank Jenny for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to come onto the podcast and share her experience and all of her expertise with you guys. So Jenny does have a really active and very, very informative Facebook group, so if you want to get a little bit of insight about the process of learning about CRNA school, go check out her Facebook group, it's called ICU dreaming about anesthesia. So go and check that out. And then I will put a link to her CRNA school prep academy in the show notes. So that's where you want to go if you're ready to dive in and start applying. So again, thanks so much, Jenny, and I'll see you guys again soon. Bye for now. podcast is brought to
1: you by Straight A Nursing.